You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. It's hard to imagine that it was as recently as the year 2004, the 21st century, when this man's work came to our shores. It's amazing because his work is so timeless. It reads like the Dickens novels. It feels like the Dickens novels. And we have uh, the kind of literature that speaks to us from within, that wells up from underneath and inside of us. Mr. Zafon gives us new lives to live again and again. He's the author of The Shadow of the Wind, The Angel's Game. His newest book is The Prisoner of Heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Carlos, you know, I was thinking that one of the things that I think is so amazing about your work are the characters and the people you give us these lives to live in. And we've often heard that good writers create characters in three dimensions. But if that's the case, you actually create them in four dimensions because you'll give us insights, in, different insights into the same characters in different books. And to me, that means you must have, at some point, have created a central character that you can view from here or here. So I'd like you to just introduce us to some of the wonderful characters you've created, Danny Samper, uh, Zamir, talk about creating these characters and creating them in the center, then looking at them from the different sides within the stories of the novels. Well, uh, I, think, uh, I think most characters for most writers come from, from within yourself. I think the way writers create characters is that you take a chunk of yourself, you take a part of yourself, and you kind of try to make it come alive. So quite usually it's something that it's inside of you, it's part of, your, of yourself as a person. And that, that's what you're using to create, to create characters. In some instances, you, you cannot find anything of yourself to give to a character, and you need that character to play a role in the plot. And that comes either from observation, from a absolute... I'm so sorry. Hello, hello? Yes, better? Yeah, I must say that this happens to me very often. I think my record is four uh, microphones in one session. For some reason, <laughs> I... I there's an interference I generate with microphones, and, and they're all resistant, so they always take a, a painstaking detail in kind of putting these kind of wireless things into me and say, don't bother, it's not going to work, and then it doesn't work. And the worst is when you're on a kind of live, live TV show, and your first mic dies, and then the second one dies, and then the third one dies, and by that time they're trying to kick you out of the station. And you say, well, you invited me into the show. If your mics are crap, it's not my problem. <laughs> say, well, they, they work fine with everybody else. It's you. You, ha you generate some energy field. So I apologize for that. I hope this one works. And if at some point you, you don't hear me well because I tend to speak in a low voice, please throw objects or something or scream and we'll try to bring it up. So going back to, to, to uh, Rick's question about characters, uh, I was saying that I think that uh, characters come from, from, from inside of you. I think most writers take a, part, take a part of themselves to generate characters. One of the things I try to do 
and maybe this addresses what Rick was saying about the four the four D thing now, which now we'll have to pump up to five D because every year it seems like this crap is getting worse. So now they three D come on transformers as three D. So we need to be ahead of the curve. So I'm I'm thinking now on six D or something like that. But I think one thing is very interesting and try to create characters in which the reader can project him or herself, in which the character also is some kind of a mirror that allows to find things of you in the story, things of you in the character, and, and, and that is what finally completes the circle. When there are things not just of the author or of the author's observation, but when you are giving without maybe realizing things of yourself to the character, that's when they really come alive and they stay with you. Well, your new book, The Prisoner of Heaven, is just so much fun. And I think one of the reasons that this is is the voice of, of Fermat. He is just a hoot. And, and it seems like you must have had a lot of fun writing this book, too. Yeah, I have a lot of fun with, with Fermin. I don't know how many of you are familiar with The Shadow of the Wind. If you read it, you probably know. <laughs> then you're, you're familiar with Fermin Romero de Torres, which is this kind of peculiar. I always think that Fermin is, is a little devil that lives inside my brain. I think Fermin is about 30% of myself and some kind of a spokesperson of my own brain, and, and, and I have fun with him, so I wanted, I knew he was gonna be back, and I knew that there were many readers that after A Shadow of the Wind felt that, you know, if there was another book in the series, okay, now, now it's when Fermin comes back, and Fermin didn't come back, and many people were angry at me saying, where is Fermin, you're keeping him under wraps, we wanna hear more from him, and say, you will, but, but, but at the right time. And, and in this case, The Prisoner of Heaven is pretty much Fermin's book. In Shadow of the Wind, he is, he is a secondary character. But in here, what we find is that because Fermin to me is more or less the moral center of these stories, in here we need to know exactly who he is, how he became the man he is. And, and, and on top of that, we need to learn something about Fermin, and, and that is that he has been keeping a secret, a secret from Daniel, from Bea, from all the characters, and, and from ourselves. And this secret is the key that is going to lead us into the heart of, 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 of the big story, the bigger story that is going to be composed of these four novels of the Cemetery of Forgotten Books. So in this instance, what we find is that we, we find the characters right after, we pick the story right after Shadow of the Wind ends. And in here, Daniel is no longer uh, an adolescent. Now he's the father of a one-year-old child. He's a married man, a very young married man, but he's a different character. And Fermin is about to get married himself. But he's very anxious, he's very worried, and his friend Daniel says, I don't know what's wrong with, with Fermin. What, what, what's and it turns out that he's keeping this terrible secret. He's been w carrying this terrible weight through 20 years, and, and, and finally the circumstances force him to reveal it, and this is gonna ignite everything, and things are gonna turn to fire, and then the adventure behind behind all this story we've been reading about, both in Shadow of the Wind and, and, and the Angels game, is gonna get really on full throttle. You know, one of the things I like about Fermin is he strikes me as being like the fool in Lear, who's my, always my favorite character, is that the fool can say things right out, straight out, that nobody else can say. And that's one of the real appeals of this character is he speaks his mind and if we just go, yeah. No, well, the thing about Fermin is that he plays that role. He's the madman in the play. 
and, and, and he can speak the truth. Well, all of the rest, anybody else cannot speak the truth because he would be punished, he would be in danger. But since Fermin, we assume that he's just this flamboyant, over-the-top character where everybody says, well, that's just Fermin, don't pay any attention. He can speak the truth, and he is the moral center of the story. He's the character that when anybody else is freaking out or losing their perspective, uh, Fermin's eyes are always on the ball. He's the one who really knows where things fall. So that's why he's the one who's going to lead us into really down the rabbit hole into the heart of the story. You know, these books remind me so much of the city they describe. As books, they seem to have kind of a layout and an architecture. And as readers, we can kind of explore them in the same way we'd explore a city. And I think you've done this deliberately. You, can, you don't have to read them in any order. They're not necessarily a, necessarily a chronological series where A follows B. There are kind of different perspectives into the heart, of this heart of, I think, darkness. Yeah, to me the idea was with these four books was to create some kind of labyrinth of stories, a labyrinth made of different books that would explore the same story from many different angles, from many different perspectives, and explore the characters and their inner truth, so many different perspectives. So essentially my idea was that you could read all of these, the fourth books, or two of them, or one of them, in any order. Of course, most readers read them in the order they are being published. But some readers don't. Some readers start reading in The Angel's Game, or The Shadow of the Wind, or now The Prisoner of Heaven, and when the fourth book is done, they can, and, and ideally, depending on what door you use to enter this, this labyrinth of stories, and depending on the journey you take, your experience as a reader, your experience of the story is gonna be different. And I think this is going to become very obvious now with The Prisoner of Heaven because if you read this book and you've read, let's say, previously The Angel's Game, your entire experience or your interpretation of The Angel's Game is going to change radically because you're going to see the story and everything you thought you knew in a very different light. And the idea is that each one of these books is gonna affect the other books and it's gonna allow you to deconstruct the story and see things from many different perspectives. And the more you get down this rabbit hole of stories, this labyrinth, the more it keeps on rearranging itself until the fourth, week in in the fourth book in which, even though now we may feel after the end of The, pri of the Prisoner of Heaven that we, we now know where this is heading we get the sense that, aha, uh -huh, finally I know where all the pieces in the game are. We don't. There's a still much more to come and this labyrinth is gonna rearrange itself and it's gonna twist and twist. And finally, I think this idea of the big Chinese box of stories is gonna become obvious by the fourth book. But I think that right now, I think this is the time, this is the book in which this idea becomes more clear. You know, one of the things I think that this book does really well is as readers, it's richly rewarding. I mean, we read this book, it's the kind of book where you read and go, oh, right, because we see A, the shadow of the wind, B, the angel's game, C, this book, and we can see, we can start to spell words. Just with three letters, we can start to spell words. Cab. Yeah, but the, the beyond pretty, that. The pretty much the, the experience about that these books try to communicate first and foremost is the pleasure of reading. The, these books are many things, are about many issues, about many aspects, but mostly they are a love letter to literature, to writing, to reading, to the art of storytelling, to the very devices that make storytelling work. And, and, and these are 
themes that run through all these uh, stories, and these stories we always have writers, readers, booksellers, editors, publishers, people who want to destroy books, people who want to, to, to save them, and at the very heart of the stories there's always the cemetery of forgotten books, this fantastic labyrinth, sanctuary, secret library in which books live forever. So this is very much at the heart of the nature of the story. And because of this, one of the things I, I wanted to, to, to communicate to the readers, first of all, is, is the enjoyment, the pleasure of the language, the beauty of the language and, and of literature. And everything else, I think, can come behind and can come after that. But first, you need to have this enjoyment. And, and this is one of the aspects that I try to work harder at, to providing an intense and rewarding uh, uh, reading experience. So the first thing I want you to have is to have fun and to remember how much fun you can have with a book in your hands. And I think that everything else that these books can be and can have will come after. You know, uh, you were talking uh, earlier today about uh, where you work and then kind of how you work. And I think that was really interesting. So I'd like you to just describe your offices and, and your kind of approach to working, which I think colors what comes out of it. Well, I am, I'm, I'm very easily distracted, so I need to isolate myself. I always say that uh, the greatest talent writers have is finding excuses not to work. So essentially, we all have this kind of device in our brains that is an excuse detector. It's kind of scanning constantly. It's like a Wi-Fi detector. You know, that's an, an app where you go and it tells you Starbucks. So you go there. So essentially, writers have this kind of, uh, of kind of uh, excuse detector not to write, not to work. And for instance, anything can happen. You just sit there, and suddenly you realize that there's a pencil that needs to be sharpened. Therefore, that day, you don't work, because you need to take care of things first. You need to get that pencil to the sharpener's office. So you go that. Then some other day, there's something else. There's a lamp that it's not working. And they say, well, it doesn't matter. It's daylight. You don't need the lamp. I say, well, what happens if I'm start working late into the night? I cannot work in the dark. It's not healthy for your eyes, you know, the, the glow from the screen, etc. So you, after you've run out of those things, you, need, you try to find other excuses. Like, I don't know, there's construction work 10 miles from here. And you can get the vibes. And it's, it's disturbing you, so you're not going to work, so you just take a holiday or do something else. So because of this and because I know myself and I try to find reasons not to work, I need to, to create a space in which I can more or less isolate myself from the world and, and I can work. So I have two of these spaces. One of them is, is in Barcelona, in my hometown, and another one is in Los Angeles. And these spaces are... Essentially, they're filled with the things I like. They're filled with books and with music. And, 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 and in them, there are thousands of CDs. There's always a good sound system. And in one of them, I have a big piano. I like to play the piano, and it's always a good escape. So I can escape at the actual desk, not to work, and, and then I go to the piano. Or usually what I do is just walk around talking to myself and avoiding actual writing or more or less if it's a cage cat, something like that. You know, when you go to the zoo and you start that in front of the tiger's cage and they go like that's me working, you know, during hours. And at some point, every once in a while, I just sit down and write something and I go back and erase it and rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it. So more or less, I think the, the thing is you need to put yourself in the situation which you need to create a routine, at least I do. When I'm working on a book, I work every day for many hours. 
and and I kind of mm, put myself into that little prison in which I cannot escape because I need to get work done. And, and the process finds itself. Mostly, uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about what I'm going to do, then I do it, then I, I do it again, then I, and I rewrite everything to death. I do everything once, over and over and over, until I think that the machine, the thing I'm trying to build, works. And, and that's more or less the process. And in the meantime, if I can find excuses not to write or to listen to music, I love music. Music's probably the thing I like most in the world. So essentially, I start listening to a piece of music. And after a while, I realize that I'm listening to the orchestration, to the bass line or something like that. I wonder what, what I was doing. And then just it's, it's gone. So I cannot work anymore that day. So I'm just <laughs> devoted to music. Well, I'm glad we were able to provide you with a superb distraction from writing this evening. Yeah, I always, I always, I'm, I'm, I have a, a tremendous talent to find distraction. I think I should open a secondary line of business finding distractions in life rather than sticking to the work. It's, it's something, I, I'm a natural for that. You know, in the, uh, the Angels game, you wrote, poetry is written with tears, fiction with blood, and history with invisible ink. And that last phrase is critical for what happens in the Prisoner of Heaven. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about your thoughts about those three kind of genres of writing, and then talk about the history that's behind a big chunk of the Angels game. Well, the history here in this case is, <coughs> since most of you are familiar with The Shadow of the Wind, you know, The Shadow of the Wind leaves the story with Danielle, with Bea pregnant closely, uh, close to the 60s, in the late 1950s, in, in the Barcelona of the late 1950s. We go back to the time in the beginning, and in here, the child is already born, and Danielle is working at the St. Paris uh, bookstore, and uh, Fermin is there working, and it seems like finally, after many adventures and many problems, seems like life is finally smiling on them, seems like their problems are over, and then they're going to have some peace and quiet. And of course, that's not the case, because this mysterious stranger shows up at the bookstore, at Sempere bookstore one morning, uh, asking for Fermin. That morning, Fermin is not, because supposedly he's taking care of a number of things about his oncoming wedding to La Bernarda, this maid he's in love with. And um, this mysterious character decides to buy the most expensive book they have at the bookstore, a, count, a, a wonderful, beautiful uh, copy of the Count of Monte Cristo, and inscribes it to somebody, saying, I want you to deliver this for me. And he pays a fortune for this book. And when, when, when Danielle opens the book and see who it's been inscribed to, it turns out it's inscribed to Fermin, and with a very cryptic and sinister message. And this, this, this character that comes out of the past is going to pull us all into the past. And the past is the very early 1940s. We're going to the darkest period in 20th century Spain, right after the Spanish Civil War, when which the Spanish Civil War ended in 1939, just when World War II was starting in the rest of Europe. And at that time, the Franco regime, who had just won the war, felt that the way things were shaping up, the way things looked up in Europe, uh, in a matter of years, Europe was going to become some kind of nightmare fascist playground, a theme park of fascism. 
Of course, it wasn't until 1942, 1941, 1942, in which was obvious that Germany was going to lose the war. It was a matter of time. But at that time, nobody thought so. Everybody thought that the, that the, that the opposite was going to be the truth. So what that meant is that the Franco regime felt that it was going to be unaccountable to history, that they could do whatever they wanted. And the revenge, the repression, was even far worse than the war had been. So especially during 1940, and especially in places like Barcelona, that had been kind of the capital of the opposition to the Franco regime, the repression was terrible. So we go back to 1940, and we find Fermín Romero de Torres, who, in one of his many adventures of high intrigue, ends up in prison in this terrible place called the Castle of Montjuic, which is a military prison overlooking the city of Barcelona from a mountain is by the sea. Is it still there? Is it still there? It's still a pretty creepy place. <laughs> I was there recently, not in prison. I try not to get into that level of problem. Now, now supposedly it's a museum. They don't know what to do with this place. It's like having, I don't know, Dracula's castle in, in, in your town and say, okay, we're going to turn it into a day center for <laughs> all folks. And say, are you sure about that? You know, it's like nobody knows what to do with this place. It's, it's a kind of creepy, strange military structure. But the thing is, Fermin finds himself trapped in this place. And in there, he's going to meet a character we already know from the Angels game, which is this crazy, um, mad writer, David Martin, that during the Angels game has been losing his sanity and has been seeing how his world, how reality has been decomposing in front of him. And he's been trying to get it down on paper before it disappears. So that's why the Angels game is this kind of the sand into the abyss of a man's madness. And in here we find him in prison there as well. And, 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 and this encounter of, of David Martin and Fermin Romero de Torres is going to bring a very interesting adventure. And they're also going to meet there a terrible character, uh, 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 the prison director, the prison's director, who's this extremely sinister character called Vice. And this man is going to lead us also we're going to find out that he's very, very much related to the, to the mystery that lies at the heart of these books. And that is also related to something that is very important, which is also the center of these stories, which is the story of Daniel's mother, Isabella. Because when we start reading Shadow of the Wind, the first thing we read, the first paragraph, is the story of this child who cannot remember his dead mother's face. And through the shadow of the wind, we never even learn her name. But her presence is the most important element because everything that happens, everything that Daniel does is an attempt to recover the face of his mother that he has lost. He has lost this memory from his childhood. And by the end of the book, when he's shot and a bullet almost pierces his heart, he remembers. And when he dies, before he goes, comes back to life, he re finally remembers his, his mother's face. His mother is a character that we, that we meet as a, as a very young woman in the Angels game. It's Isabella who becomes the apprentice, the, the novelist apprentice who helps and kind of saves David Martin or tries to from himself and from his own demons. In here, we're going to find really what happened to Isabella, why Isabella is dead. And this is what is going to 
kind of pull together all the threads in the story and it's going to keep us bringing back and forth from this time, this terrible time in 1940, which is when she dies by the end of the Spanish Civil War, and, uh, and the present of the characters, when Daniel Fermin need to confront the ghost of the past and need to fight to confront this terrible menace that, that has the face of this man called Vice, which of course is going to get worse and worse and deeper and deeper as the story goes on. You talked about Daniel's memory, and I think that one of the interesting things for me about these books is that as I read them and then think uh, back about reading them, my memories of reading them are in many ways as strong as my memories of things I've done, and I think that's one of the things that's really important about these books and about reading it in general is that a good book puts the same kind of memories in your brain that you that real experience does. And I think that these books, in large part, revolve around memory and how it works and how it doesn't work. Well, well one of the main themes also in this series of books is, is, is memories, the past, is, is, is the fact that we are what we remember. And, 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 and memory defines our identity, defi defines our humanity. And, and what these books do, and they explore the consequences of our actions, of our choices, the fact that the sins of the fathers are visited upon their sons, the fact that everything we do, every single action we take has a consequence on other people and creates ripples through time, and this goes on and on, and this we see this as we read more of these uh, stories that little by little uh, we find a lot of these tiny little threads, these lines that come from something that happened a long time ago and then finally has a consequence and everything has an action and a consequence. And this is one of the main, main, main themes of the, of the stories. And I think, too, the stories themselves remind us that who, of who we are because these people are so much their stories. We as readers remember that we are the story we tell ourselves. We're, we're a narrative species. We are. We pretty much are what we remember. We, we recreate our own stories. We justify our actions, our needs, our ambitions, our desires. We create a story in our minds about who we are, why we do the things we do, why, why we want the things we want, why we fear the things we want. And it's how our brains work. And I think one of the interesting things that literature can do is, is, is to offer a mirror into us and to bring us these kind of characters then that, that not are just characters, they're not just fictions, not external people, but they're a vessel, a vessel that we can get into and that we can use to travel these stories. I think at some point in The Shadow of the Wind, one of the characters says that a book uh, uh, a book is just a mirror, and that you can only find in it the things that are already inside of yourself. Uh, I believe that it's very much the truth. I think it's, it's the job of the, of the writer to try to put this mirror in front of you and help you find things that are already inside of you. It's not that, that the author is revealing anything, that it's not in your mind, that it's not in your heart, but sometimes you don't really find it because it's there, and you, you take it for granted, and hopefully these characters that become a part of you and that become part of your memories as well and your emotional experiences because they allow you to revisit things that happened to yourself and things that were very important in your lives and then are kind of parallel to what happens to, to the characters. So this is something I always try to do and I think it's, it, it's a way of bringing the reader closer to, to the experience of, of, of the book. Well, I think too, your books are 
so filled with detail and beautiful prose. They really create the world for us. I mean, they're better than movies. I got to tell you, hands down, I, I, any one of your books is a thousand times better than any movie of it could ever be. And it's better than most movies. And I think that's interesting that you're, it, as a reading experience, you really get to us in a visual manner as well. Yeah, well, one of the things I try to do, I think that um, up until maybe early 20th century, novels incorporated many elements from different genres, from different narrative forms. When you go back to the 19th century and you read, for instance, the, the novels of Victor Hugo, you find that they incorporate poetry and drama and philosophy and journalism, all these different things. And, and novels for a long time kept enriching themselves with many different things. They were the supreme form of storytelling and, and more or less they would take things from, from everywhere. Interestingly, through the 20th century, other narrative languages evolved coming out of the novel, such as movies, out of such as televisions, out of everything, comic books, genre fiction, modernist fiction, many different things. And it seems like the mainstream novel, instead of growing and doing more and more things, start doing less and less things. At some point, it seems like literature says, you know, uh, the movies tell stories more efficiently. We will stop telling stories. Or television tells us things, so we won't do that. Or journalism actually analyzes the world and tells you what's going on, so we won't do that anymore. And philosophy tries to think about these uh, inner questions, inner nature, and whatever, so we won't do that anymore. And poetry experiments with language and blah, blah, blah. So we went, so after a while I said, what, what the hell are we doing? You know, it's like, what, what are novels supposed to do? Novels in the 19th century were meant to be the great book of life, these greatest stories in which everything is incorporated that have to be entertaining, have to seduce us, have to engage us, have to stimulate us, and all of these things were there. So I'm always wondering, since we've learned so much through the 20th century from what we could call the engineering of storytelling that comes from all these different languages that have been evolved, why don't we try to use and incorporate all these elements to reconstruct the classic model of the novel? And one of the elements is, of course, is everything we've learned through the 20th century from audiovisual grammar, from the use of imagery, from texture, from a sensorial kind of tactile experience. And, and this is one of the things that I try to incorporate in the books. So that the books may work in many layers, they may work as a traditional literary text, but at the same kind, they try to provide you with this very extreme visual, sensorial uh, experience, so that at some point, you're no longer holding in your hands a piece of paper, but you're inside a story, you're feeling the imagery, you're feeling the light, the senses, the sounds. And I try to incorporate all these things to provide the reader the most intense and rewarding reading experience possible, all in the service of the characters and the story. But I think that the more we can learn about the art of storytelling, and storytelling is an art and a science. We tend to think, we were early talking with Rick about this, about technology. It seems like technology has evolved tremendously through the 20th century, and we think it only applies to gizmos. Technology applies to many things, and we can talk about a technology of storytelling, of language, of codes, of many different things that we use to construct messages and, and, and symbols. 
and, and all of these, I think, we, we've learned a lot from that. I'm trying to apply everything I can from all these things to reconstruct a traditional model of the 19th century novel with the same classic themes of literature in which there's romance and love and passion and mystery and adventure and all these things, but using all these devices because I think that all of us, contemporary readers, are much more sophisticated than we think. We can instantly decode many different things that come because we've been educated through our lives from absorbing advertising, graphic design, photography, comic books, uh, animation, movies, TV, novels, genre, fiction, all sorts of experiments in, in literature. And we just decode these things without even thinking about it. So why not try to stimulate the reader's brains that are ready and willing to accept all these different inputs with the modern novel, with a mo novel that not only kind of repeats the traditional, the traditional patterns of the 19th century novel, but tries to do so, these classic themes of literature, using all these devices that, that, we, can, that we can use nowadays. Well, I agree, and let's get some uh, questions from our modern stimulated readers from the audience. Uh, you, sir. The question is if the, he, this gentleman says that Shadow of the Wind seems ideal for a movie, and he wants to know if I've been approached or have considered turning into a movie. Uh, well, the, 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 the answer is yes. I've been, there have been endless attempts to transform Shadow of the Wind and some of the other books into movies. And, and my answer has always been the same, no. And why I've said no? Uh, for, for many reasons. One of them is because I worked for a few years as a screenwriter, so I've been inside the kitchen. I know the process very well. I know what happens. And because of that, I am extremely cautious. Because I know that in films, as wonderful as the medium of film is, there's no such a thing as authorship. Films are uh, an accident, are a process that sometimes result in masterpieces. Most of the times, they don't. But the actual process is a combination of many factors. Since I've been inside of the factory, I know how things are assembled. When it comes to my own personal work, to my own world, I want to protect that. If I've been a writer for hire, I've been a mercenary, I happily take a check and say, okay, all of your wonderful suggestions in the back of the check, please. And, and then I'll do. But if I'm doing something which to me is my own personal work, I don't want to compromise that. And on top of that, in the case of these four novels of the Cemetery of Forgotten Books, uh, there's something that bugs me, which is why everything has to become a movie or a TV series or a video game. There's nothing wrong with any of these mediums in which there's been great work done and, and also not so great. Mm. But, but sometimes I think, why can't the book stay a book? Why, why everything is forced? And to me, nothing, nothing tells a story with the rich, the deafness, the complexity, and the wonder that a novel does if it's done right. So for that reason, and because to me also these books are very much about the, the act of reading, of writing, of how stories work, how they are cons con constructed about literature itself, it would be wrong, I felt, to try to exploit them in a different medium just to squeeze a few dollars out of it or try to make them more popular. To me, the books are popular enough. They could be much more famous, I guess. Could I sell them? Of course. A lot of people have tried to buy them. But I always feel, you know, that the money I'm not making by not selling them is the price I pay to keep them as I feel they should be. 
So for all these reasons, because to me this is all these books are first books and they are proud to be books. They don't need to be anything else. They will never become a movie or a TV series or anything else because I think that they don't have to. And because, as I was saying, I'm trying to incorporate in one of the many layers this kind of very visual experience for you as a reader. I feel that the best possible movie, and, and the reason that you're asking this question, because you have already seen that movie in your mind. This movie has been projected in the theater of your mind. So you say, what is not there at the multiplex playing with the other uh, Spider-Man 15 or something <laughs> like that? Because you've already seen it in 6D, as Rick would say. And, and I think it's a necessary, and for that reason, you know, the book will always be there, and a wonderful bookstore in the shelves, whatever, but the, it will never be a movie. I'm gonna go with the lady way at the back. Red, you, yes? Well, the question is if, if all these issues that these this novels uh, talk about the Spanish Civil War, the Franco years, etc. I guess you're referring to how, how this is received in Spain, my native country, how are there's, and, and if there are other works about this or if people talk about this. Uh, yes, of course, uh, the fact that Spanish Civil War is, is like World War II in Europe is the most significant and tragic and determining event of the 20th century over its entire modern history. So a lot, Spanish Civil War is the culmination of this historical process that comes from afar. And from it, many different lines grow from it, so it's not over. In many ways, there it's about many fractures, historical fractures in the Spanish society, in the Spanish history. So of course there's been, even though during the 40 years of the Franco dictatorship, there was always only one reading allowed of, of, of what, what the, the war had been. Ever since 19, the mid-70s, which when Franco died and, and democracy came back to Spain and the, the country was modernized and, and got reattached to Europe, uh, there's been enormous and enormous amount of literature and movies and popular culture and all sorts of things. And in most of these things, you can still feel that these fractures have not been properly healed, that they were much deeper than it seemed, and that these issues continue to boil, even though, of course, the, the, the country in 19, in the 30s, and the country of today are radically different, but there are some things that never entirely heal. And I think the same fractures that you can find if you go to Europe, you can still feel that many of the elements of World War II are still there, even though societies have changed tremendously. And, and yes, the, how, how is received or how these books are received? I think because there have been so many books and movies and things about the Spanish Civil War, nobody is surprised that in many ways it's impossible to write about Spain in the 20th century and kind of avoid these issues. Would be like, I don't know, writing about Europe in the 40s and pretending World War II never happened. It would be people were at the beach playing volleyball and say, what are you talking about? It's 1945 and you're in Berlin, people are not playing volleyball in the river or things like that. So I think that the, these issues are, and the reception, in fact, uh, these books have been extremely popular in Spain and, and, and in many other places, but uh, to give you an example, uh, uh, Shadow of the Wind is the most popular Spanish novel of all time. And uh, <laughs> Spanish from Spain, let's say, the most, 
I think the only other book who's been more popular than that written in Spanish would be 100 Years of Solitude. But 100 Years of Solitude came out 40 years ago already. Seems like it was yesterday, but it's been kicking around <laughs> for 40 <laughs> years, which is a long time. But so the book has was very well received, and the other books in the series have been very well received. But I don't think it is because they deal with the Spanish Civil War or they bring any new insights to it that were not there. In fact, that the it's something that is so important in the in Spanish history that it's been constantly being dealt with. And I don't think that I brought necessarily anything new to that debate. I'm just trying to incorporate these elements and try to be truthful and honest to historical truth because I'm 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 using the time and the period and I need to to go through it. But I'm not really writing about it. The books are not about that. We have time for one more question. Uh, okay, you right there, sir. My relationship with translation, it sounds like a kind of a tricky thing, you know, it's like, okay, what's your relation with Mrs. Translation? We want to know the dirty of that. Okay, well, uh, the, my, my relationship with translation uh, is different in, in different cases, in different languages. In usually I try to be very helpful and I'm very involved trying to work with, with most of my translators. In some instances, I can help them a lot. In some instances, I cannot, or I try to. In the case, I guess, you're more referring to the, the translation into English. In the case of the translation into English, I would say I'm extremely involved in the process. And the way I, I, I've been very lucky, in which I've been working with Lucia Graves for many years. Lucia Graves is not really a translator. Lucia Graves, uh, who's the daughter of Robert Graves, the poet, had mostly, until 10 years ago, translated sometimes her father's work. and but, but she works in her own books. She writes nonfiction, she writes fiction, and she's completely bilingual. She grew up in Mallorca in Spain in the Franco years. And so when she speaks Spanish, you would never hear she's from, she's from actually she's, she's a Brit, she's English. You would never think that she, this lady ever set full on the island <laughs> of England. And suddenly when she speaks English, you would never think that she, she speaks Spanish as well. So she's kind of completely 50-50. And she's very talented and very smart. And the way this started working is that when Shadow of the Wind was published in Spain in 2001, on the first week of publication, Lucia happened to be in Barcelona, and she bought the book at a bookstore just out of the blue. She started reading it, and she liked it very much. And it turned out that she found out that she knew my agent, because they both had kind of grown up together in the island of Mallorca back in the day. So she contacted my agent and said, you know what, Antonia? Uh, mm, I would like to translate this book into English. And my agent told her, well, right now we, we don't even have any offers from English-speaking publishers because we know it just came out five days ago. You just got the first edition. And she said, well, you please bear in there in mind when in time. So a few months later, when we first got uh, an offer at the time, I think it was Random House, to, to publish the book in English, uh, the, the publishers decided to, to try many different or most of the three or four foremost or more established translators from uh, Spanish into English. 
I was very concerned about this because I knew that the book was very difficult to translate. And I was kind of asking, well, well what, what are you going to do? Who are you going to use? No, no, we're going to use these people who are very good, you'll see. And they decided to ask for them for a sample chapter. So they, each one of them translated the very first chapter of the, of the book in which Daniel first goes to the Cemetery of Forgotten Books. And they sent to me the results. They were terrible. They, I say, oh my God, they, they, this, is, this is horrendous. It seems like it was translated by Tarzan or something like that. And, uh, and I say, why don't you give Lucia a shot? You didn't want to give her a shot first. You say, well, but she's not a translator. And say, well, doesn't please give her a shot. You, you don't have anything to lose. This, these samples are crap. So, hey. <laughs> so Lucia submitted her own sample, which was not working, but was by far the best. And on top, the most important thing is that she knew it was not working yet. And she know, you know, I know this is not working yet, but I think, so I, I get a hint that we could find a way of working together and say, you know what, M by that time we had wasted so much time trying these different people and talking, and so we say, you know what, what we're gonna do is, Lucia starts working on a very rough first draft, and she can consult with me as much as she wants. When we have like 20, 30 pages of manuscripts, send them over to me and I start reworking this. And, and then I'll send them over to Lucia. So we started creating this kind of loop in which she would work in the first draft, I would rewrite things. And in the beginning, I remember, was rewriting almost everything. And the more we got and the more Lucia saw exactly how we would adapt things and how we, the less it was necessary for me to rewrite. And it was just adjusting things of tone of little things. So little by little, this kind of strange kind of loop way uh, perfected itself. And to this day, we work in this way in which she works in the first draft. She sends it to me. I rewrite things. I change things. She goes over that. We argue about certain things. And what we're always trying to do is, mm, and, and for to me, my, my objective is that when you pick this book in English, you read exactly what you would be reading when you're reading in Spanish. Because I think sometimes, especially English-based readers, I think tend to mystify the process of translation. They feel like translators rewrite books. And sometimes you hear these things, well, I love this book, at least the translation. I don't know. I said, what the hell you think you're reading? I mean, it's it like, like the, the translator just came out and said, okay, I'm doing drugs. I kept coming with this new stuff that essentially good translation is invisible and it's very hard to do because you need to adapt the dynamics, the patterns, everything, the music of the prose to come with exact equivalent. So any reader in a good translation never feels as a translation because you don't, doesn't have that clunkiness in which you don't really know what was going on in the original, but you feel that these structures just are not right, that there's something wrong about them. So my goal is to try to reach a text in which nothing is lost and especially not just terms of meaning or subject or, or but 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 the very structure of the language, the very pace, the music it makes, because I think that's the most important part of the reading experience. And uh, and and this is what we try to do, refining, working it over and over and over. And finally, I think that all of the translations so far into English have been successful, and I'm happy with them. And until I get the feeling that they're right, I kind of. Won't, won't let that be published. And sometimes, you know, if it needs to be done again, we do it again. And, but, but I think that, mm, at least as far as I can tell, 
uh, translations you're reading from English are exactly the same thing, and very, very little is lost in translation. Thank you very much, Carlos. Thank you very much. Uh, you can queue up over here to buy the books and over here to sign, get them signed. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.